This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. There's a common perception that if you believe in climate change, you're probably a Democrat. But research out of CU Boulder finds that Republicans and Democrats may not be as divided as we think, and that disagreements over what to do about climate change may actually occur for the sake of disagreeing. The study's author is Leif Van Boven, psychology professor at CU Boulder. And hi, Leif. Hello there. What do you mean when you say that folks may just disagree for the sake of disagreeing? Yeah, that's a, that's a very troubling uh, but deep-seated um, tendency in, in our political psychology, wherein when we consider ideas and policies, uh, what we think we're doing is we think we're responding to those policies themselves. But what we are actually doing is reacting to who proposes those policies, to where those policies come from, whether they come from Democrats or Republicans, from um, conservative or uh, liberal thinkers. And this is a tendency that um, social psychologist Jeff Cohen has referred to as placing party over policy. And it has all kinds of implications for issues beyond climate change. It's partly why I wanted to start with this idea uh, that a good idea that maybe a lot of people would agree with no matter their party uh, is shot down simply because of the source of it. That's right. And, and the broader point is that it's actually quite difficult for most of us to evaluate ideas outside of, of thinking about where they come from. So even though we, we very much would like to um, sort of take an idea at its face and, and ask whether this particular policy would be wise or make sense given our beliefs and values, it's, it's very difficult for us to set aside the kind of political tribalism that causes us to um, sort of toe the party line on um, on partisan issues. Okay, I want to get back to that and specifically how it might relate to actions by government that might fight climate change in a moment. But your study found that most Republicans believe climate change is real and human-caused. And yet we may not hear Republicans voicing that belief. So how did you find this out? So we conducted two um, national surveys, each survey with about 1,000 respondents. One was in 2014, uh, the other was in 2016, actually just before the presidential election. And in this survey, we um, asked people how much they agreed with four different statements about climate change. So we asked them how much they agreed that climate change was happening, that climate change poses a risk to humans, that human activity is responsible for climate change, and that reducing greenhouse gas emissions might mitigate climate change. So we took agreement with those um, four statements and we averaged them together and we simply looked at whether people agreed or disagreed um, with those statements. And what we found was that the majority of Republicans, just like the majority of Democrats and independents, agreed that climate change is a reality, a concerning reality that we should do something about. Now, we also found that most people underestimated how much Republicans uh, believed in climate change. That is, most people thought that Republicans were slightly on the skeptical side about climate change. And in fact, that's uh, obviously not what we found. So the the problem this creates for, for people in their everyday lives is that they have a misunderstanding of of what their peers might believe. 
So if I was a Republican and I believed in climate change, was concerned about climate change, but I thought my Republican peers were skeptical, it's very difficult for us to, to um, voice concerns that might stand against our peers. Ah, Nobody that's, wants that's to stand why, in opposition. Yeah, that's why the perception here, in a way, becomes reality. The perception becomes reality because, psychologically speaking, perception is reality. Huh. Our understanding of the social world is is really our um, construction of that social world. And sometimes those constructions can be misguided. So you – just to reiterate, you found in fact that a majority of Republicans agreed with those statements about climate change. Uh, not to the same degree as Democrats, let's be clear. But you also found – that the perception of Republican views of climate change are skewed compared to the data that you discovered, and that that's having a real effect on, on perhaps the conversation. I, I suppose that that all points to the idea that somewhere along the line, climate change got to be perceived as a lefty issue, not a centralizing issue. How do you think that came to be? Well, we have to be – I want to be a little bit careful here because I'm, I'm not really a, a political scientist or a historian. So um, I, I, I study this, the kind of psychological reality as it exists in, in the moment. So it's not exactly clear when this became so polarized. Many have suggested that um, Al Gore might have had something to do with it, that having very prominent Democrats speak out about climate change and, and call for action – provided a very clear point of opposition for Republicans to, to differentiate themselves. And so it's true that historically climate change has been a, a bipartisan issue, that it really only has been the past 20 years or so that there has been such partisan disagreement at the national level um, about the reality of climate change or whether we should do something about climate change. And there's been a lot of effort to try to change people's minds about uh, the reality of climate change, and those seem to be having some effect. Well, let's let's circle back to the idea of solutions, and what we started with this idea that if a solution to climate change is seen as Republican, uh, Democrats may balk, and if if a solution to climate change is seen as Democratic, Republicans may balk. Uh, how do you break that logjam, if you will, that idea that you say people disagree perhaps for the sake of disagreeing? That's right. That's, a, that's a, um, an incredibly challenging problem. So, so let's first just be really clear about what we found in our study. So, so what, we, what we did is we described to people one of two policies that have been proposed in the public sphere. So one was a, a cap and trade program. The other was a revenue neutral carbon tax. And then we experimentally manipulated whether we described those policies as coming from um, Democrats or Republicans. And what we found was that people very much towed the party line. Mm -hmm. That is, Democrats like the policies that they think came from Democrats more than they like policies they think came from Republicans. And Republicans like the policies they believed came from uh, Republicans more than they like the policies that came from Democrats toward which they were actually quite neutral. So we also found in this um, study that this type of behavior exactly contradicts the way people want to behave. So we ask people to reflect on what it means to be a good citizen and to think about how much we should react to policies based on their content versus react to policies based on where they come from. 
And people overwhelmingly thought that we should evaluate policies based on what they are rather than where they come from. Makes sense. So the challenge here is is really not to – we don't necessarily want to change people's minds, but we want to help them become the types of good citizens they want to be. Um, and that is a, is a uh, sort of much easier problem to tackle because it's really more about creating awareness of these processes and about guarding against these processes in, in our everyday political lives. So stopping to ask ourselves, would I respond differently if this idea came from uh, a Democrat rather than from a Republican? So that's one thing is to, is to really try to increase awareness of, of these processes um, in the act of sort of civic engagement. The other thing that we, that we can do is, is really speak up about our personal beliefs. Um, and and maybe especially when we are worried about going against our political peers. Ah. Because when we misperceive what our peers believe, when we think that our peers are skeptical when in fact they're not, it's all the more important to kind of break this false norm. And once those false norms are broken, they can quickly shatter as we start to kind of be more honest about what it is we believe. It's fascinating. It's like the idea of my political self versus my higher self, my aspirational self. Leif, thanks for explaining this to us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Leif Van Boven is a psychology professor at CU Boulder. His new study suggests that Republicans and Democrats agree more than they think about climate change. The research appears in Perspectives on Psychological Science. President Trump's overnight tweet threatening Iran is getting a lot of attention, but there's still huge controversy over Trump's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki and his invitation to Putin for a second summit this fall in Washington. That offer was a major topic of discussion in Aspen, where late last week some of the best minds in foreign policy talked about challenges around the globe. We listened in on a panel that dissected what happened in Helsinki and what might take place in Washington. Today, some excerpts. Journalist Julia Yaffe questioned three experts, Nina Khrushcheva, a professor at the New School in New York, Andrew Weiss, he's a former member of the National Security Council, and Victoria Nuland was an assistant secretary of state under President Barack Obama. Nuland took on a key question, should there be a second summit? Look, 32-year career diplomat, I always believe that talking is better than not talking. I think it was important for these guys to sit down. Perhaps having a do-over summit in the fall might be an opportunity for us to get it right. President Trump, if he'd chosen to embrace it, actually walked into the Helsinki summit stronger than an American president has been in a long time rising defense budgets, a NATO summit, despite the president's effort to spoil it rhetorically, that actually produced rising defense budgets by all NATO allies. The Russians, by contrast, are broke, and Vladimir Putin is broke. We had a lot of uh, ability, and can again in November, to walk into a summit with Vladimir Putin well-prepared and cut some deals, offer some deals, but on terms that demand that Russia come back into civilized behavior if it wants to work with us. But I believe in going in with a posi- from a position of strength and knowing what it is that the United States needs to defend our people, which, after all, is the president's first job. Andrew, Nina, care to weigh in? Just a little thing. I think... This is Nina Khrushcheva. completely agree with Victoria that talking is better than not talking. I think what struck me, especially 
coming out of the Soviet Union. I am the former Soviet among these people. It does seem that Donald Trump was went into the meeting, went into the summit on behalf of Donald Trump. And I think that was probably the most shocking revelation because Putin, however autocratic he may be, actually went there on behalf of Russia. And that flip-flop was just, for all of us watching this, seemed like we are in some surreal universe. Here's Andrew Weiss, formerly with the National Security Council. The only thing I'd add to that is that there's a lot of risk dispersed across the breadth of the U.S.-Russian relationship. Right now, there's basically zero trust. And then we've had some really bad flashpoint incidents. On February 7th, there was this incident in Syria where we understand you know, perhaps a couple hundred Russian contract soldiers who are kind of a deniable but you know, still instrument of the Russian state tried to test our resolve in Syria and attacked a place where U.S. Special Operations Forces were deployed, and they paid a very heavy price for that. So I agree with Toria that talking is good. The goal should be to put guardrails on what is going to be a largely adversarial or competitive relationship. And this administration should be judged on do they manage the relationship effectively, not do they make these grandiose promises about how we're going to get along and how we're all going to kind of turn the page about the bad stuff that's happened. The bad stuff is real, and it's going to have a lasting, corrosive effect. So my next question actually dovetails with that. You know, I think in the media it was framed as Putin won Helsinki. So if he won Helsinki, who lost? And the second question to that is, what are the practical consequences of Helsinki? Okay, that was a crazy thing to watch, but are there any practical consequences that are going to come out of that summit? Putin, you know, way outperformed, I think more than he would have liked. You know, Donald Trump basically set himself on fire. Putin tried really hard to, you know, sort of say he was tough on Crimea and, you know, he was trying to do things to help compensate for, for Trump's just, you know, wild man performance. Um, but in the end, Putin's behavior and his maladroit effort to deny that Russia had interfered in our election, to deflect this with this crazy proposal that, you know, he was going to, you know, offer up the 12 intelligence officials who've been indicted by the Mueller team, all that, I think, just catalyzed what Putin wants least, which is another round of sanctions. So there's now moves in the Senate and the House to move a new sanctions package forward. So, you know, in some ways, Russia has become even more toxic. And if the opening statements that Putin and Trump had delivered, which were generally, you know, very kind of statesmanlike and sort of addressed a lot of what Toria was describing, if that's where the thing had ended, they would both be in a very different position today. Toria, what do you think? Putin did not get the Donald Trump that he needed to make Russia great again. You know, he wants to uh, get back to this great superpower negotiation, uh, like in the old days, uh, where we decide the fate of the rest of the world together. That requires a strong, leaderly American with whom you can cut deals. Uh, When, in the middle of the press conference, uh, our president embarrassed himself and embarrassed us, he just ended up looking weak, which is why I think you see Putin trying to to help Trump out during the press conference a little bit. You know, I think they've been dismayed, obviously, that the president is is constrained by the three branches of government and checks and balances. You know, soon after he was elected, the Congress legislated the sanctions so that he couldn't just lift them unilaterally. And these additional constraints just encourage them to think that he's weaker than he was before. But I think in terms of what Europeans and some of us in the, in the biz were worried about the president giving away in the one-on-one, either recognizing Crimea on the spot or saying we're going to get out of Syria and leave the Russians to manage the Iranians. Um, 
luckily it wasn't substantive enough that there was much irrevocable there in terms of U.S. policy position that I could see. And, you know, traditionally, especially in regards to the, you know, election meddling, Putin has tried to keep himself at a distance and say we never interfere in the internal affairs of another country. But in Helsinki, he said, yes, I did. I wanted him to win. And he inserted him square into the center of American politics. Why did he do that, and what does it mean? I completely agree that that side of Putin, the grand statesman that's been in power for 18 years, certainly was dominating. He had a blast. I mean, he didn't expect uh, Donald Trump to fall that easily, and I think that's why he inserted himself into that American debate, precisely to see how he can up that game, because he's a grand gambler. We've seen it with Crimea. We saw it in Syria. We saw it in Georgia. We saw it with meddling. He's a really high-stakes gambler. And I think that was one of the gambles to see whether he can actually put an even broader wedge into the relationship with Europe, relation with the United States. And in some ways, it is also very Russian. You kind of build with one hand and you kill it with another. Can we game this out? What could be, does it, like Andrew said, make Russia more toxic in America and hamper Trump in making a deal with Russia in the future? I think, well, the question really is, does Russia want these big deals or do they want to keep watching the unraveling of the U.S.-led international system? I personally think that's the game here. This is about basically creating a, you know, a vision of the United States and sort of helping the United States president, who's alienating our longest standing allies, who's blowing up the international trading system, and who's making the U.S. toxic. And I think that's, that's a gift which you know, the Russians' primary concern all along has been that people like Toria were engaged in a policy of promoting regime change. And that was, for them, this existential concern <laughs> and they have responded asymmetrically to it since 2011, yeah. 2012. They've convinced themselves of that. They see this threat. They believe that the U.S. deep state that people keep talking about was coming for them. And so now Donald Trump has taken that totally off the table. Yeah. So they can, they've got a much freer hand. So it's not even about sanctions at this point? I, I think that's, that would be a nice to have if, if it's on offer, but... But this is much more about the you know, preservation of their regime and their yeah. safety. Nina, but also just, well, just one thing. Absolutely, I don't think it's that much about the sanctions. I also think that uh, Putin is a global splinter, and now he's probably a global hammer more than just a splinter. This array works for him because the European allies, they're so freaked out, please forgive this word, by Trump, uh, by this agent of chaos, that Emmanuel Macron, I think he has been in, in Moscow, in Russia, five times in the last two months. So they are clearly building some sort of relationship out there because Putin is still more familiar entity than completely unpredictable Trump. So that's also Putin's game, I think, to some degree. And just to build on that, Putin's also making himself the indispensable man in the Middle East with Syria being ground zero, where we've had eight trips by Netanyahu to Russia because he can't count on the United States to keep Iran off of his border. Yes, it is important for Putin's view that he can now not only contest for dominance of the neighborhood around him as he wanted in his earlier terms, but also he can contest who gets to run the global system. But I don't think it solves Vladimir Putin's problem inside Russia. Uh, He does need sanctions relief. He does need uh, investment. He does need relief from the international isolation that was applied both for the interference in elections and for uh, Ukraine. If Russia's not starting to grow and produce 
He can't continue in a, in a country that is now saying that what it cares about most is whether its hospitals are working. He can't continue to feed his people on this nostalgic glory without the pie growing a little bit. Victoria Nuland was Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs in the Obama administration. Andrew Weiss was a National Security Council staffer during the Clinton administration. And Nina Khrushcheva is a professor of international affairs at the New School. She's also the granddaughter of former Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. The panel's moderator, Julia Yaffe, was a correspondent for GQ. They spoke at the Aspen Security Forum last Friday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When I say the word veteran, I imagine the Cold War may not come to mind. Cold War warriors are often overlooked. Don Stanton wants to change that, especially with so much attention now on U.S.-Russian relations. Stanton teaches political science at CU Denver, and he's written a new book that profiles some of these vets. And Don, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. I think your book really solidified for me that the term veteran isn't just someone in a foxhole or who carried a gun. How does the Cold War expand our understanding of service? Ryan, uh, if you look at the entire Cold War, which ran from 1947 to 1991, you have to look at it in a holistic effect because you have uh, political, economic, and military pieces of that. There were millions of people in the Cold War on both sides of the superpower conflict, but also it involved the allies and it involved various levels of people. Everyone, for example, in the United States was somewhat involved because of the industry base uh, trying to get an atom bomb. We were building one bomb a day. Uh, There was a whole effort to do that, and it affected entire communities, families, and the military veterans, who, by the way, the average was about 2.3 million people on active duty during those 40 years. My goodness. And, of course, there were specific wars within the Cold War, theaters that we fought in, Uh, you know, Korea, Vietnam, etc. But I I think what you're saying is that the Cold War scoops up a lot of people. And I think when you talk about production, for instance, of nuclear weapons, of Rocky Flats right here in Colorado, the workers there who were exposed to some pretty uh, bad conditions and who consider themselves veterans of the Cold War. You're right, Ryan. Uh, and production at Rocky Flats went from 1952 to 1992. It affected tens of thousands of people. They were producing plutonium triggers. And as you know, there was a big environmental remediation and there's been health issues for them. If you look back at Colorado, uh, Senator Ed Johnson in 1946 was key. For to- whom the Johnson Tunnel is named. Exactly. Yeah, big Ed I-70. Johnson. Uh, He helped create the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, which opened up development, especially in southwestern Colorado. For example, Yerevan was a specific uranium mining town west of Montrose on the Utah border. And they had a great deal of uranium that came out. 
Even in 1950, uh, one of my favorite photographs is Miss Atomic Energy 1950 with her court. Miss Atomic Energy? Yes. With her what? Her court. They were in white gowns. And in front of her was a ton of uranium ore, which was her prize. So you can imagine the effect that this had on southwest Colorado. But there were huge environmental and health costs to tens of thousands of workers. This was part of that supply chain for building atomic bombs. So just to be clear, her award for being Miss Atomic Energy was radioactive exposure? Well, it was very low doses, but she got a ton in 1950, which was the year I was born. Uh, And you have to think then of the miners. You have to think of the millers uh, and then through to those who manufactured these weapons. Uh, Of course, Cold War veterans go well beyond Colorado. And I want to focus on some other folks that you profile in this book, Don Stanton. It's called Looking Back at the Cold War. Will you tell me about Roger Stambaugh, who was a P-2 patrol plane commander in Norfolk, Virginia, during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yes, Ryan. He uh, enlisted in the Navy and uh, became a pilot in uh, 1959-1960. So by 1962, he had been in the Navy for three years. He had flown with his crew of 10 over to Norfolk, Virginia for training for a week. And they went down the next day to pre-flight their plane to go back and found guards on it and a nuclear depth charge, a real one. And he ran across the street to find out what was going on. And an Atlantic fleet admiral said, You now belong to me. It's a Cuban Missile Crisis. It's October 27th of 1962. Fly a night patrol. Go down and try and get the submarines that are accompanying the inbound uh, Soviet ships. And when you find them, call us back and we'll let you know whether or not you're going to use this nuclear depth bomb. In an an instant, he finds himself on the brink of the the coldest part of the Cold War. And as he says, I hadn't been briefed. I was flying off a strange beach, which is Navy talk for out of a strange base. And he said, the admiral said, and if you can't get a hold of us, just use your best judgment. So here he is, 25 years old. and Possibly deciding the fate of the world. That's right. And he, you know, he uh, later became a dentist. He's uh, probably 90 years old now. But this came out. And at the same time, under those those uh, four Soviet submarines, they hadn't had good communication with Moscow for many hours. So they thought World War III had started. So in their protocol, the captain and the political officer had decided to use a nuclear torpedo. And luckily on that one submarine, the flotilla commander, who was a captain, Archipov, voted no. So they didn't start a nuclear war. I think what it makes you realize is that so often we think international affairs are in solid hands, that these decisions are being made uh, in, in nuanced meetings in Washington or in Moscow. But in, in this aspect of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when really the tension between the United States and the Soviets was all focused on this island just off our coast, this was in the hands and minds of some inexperienced young people. There were instances of that. And thankfully, as the Cold War went on, both sides, the Soviet Union and the U.S., were able to establish protocols which stabilized things. I think of the phone, this infamous phone that gave a direct line between Washington and Moscow. That was, I think, in 1963. And it was one of the stabilizing factors. 
Why did you want to write a book about the Cold War? Well, I had been teaching several classes at uh, CU Denver, and I noticed that when I mentioned the word Cold War or Vietnam or Korea, often uh, there was not too much comment and it was vague. And so I decided to put together a timeline. And at the same time, I started looking back during my 24 years in the Navy. uh, Seven of my friends were killed in various things. And I wanted to put down what they were doing, often in remote places, to show this. And also, I reached out to over 50 civilian and military veterans to try and get sense. And I finally got 30 different stories. To really give a sense for how broad and diverse the Cold War was, this this long conflict, I, I want to talk about the Russian operation Snowball. Right. A really scary time for the U.S. It was. It was 1954. And of course, this was a secret operation. Now, you have to put in perspective that after World War II, we were the only ones with a nuclear weapon and the only ones that could deliver it with strategic bombers. So our view was we have the upper hand. No one would dare operate. However, we found out through secret means that they had taken uh, 45,000 people from the Soviet army. They had dropped a uh, 40-kiloton nuclear weapon, and then they had prepared many of these units to maneuver around and by the radiated area. And that shocked America's military and political planners because that meant that the Russians weren't just going to kowtow, but they were going to be able to operate in a radiated battlefield. So we had to change our military doctrine. And you found that the army created short-range nuclear weapons, and there was a proliferation after that. So the idea there was that if a draw, if a bomb was dropped, that wasn't the end. They That's were pre- correct. They were prepared then to support that with even more military force and to operate exactly in that like nuclear winter environment? They were. And the other thing was they were building themselves up very quickly to be able to respond, and we did not have the upper hand. The Cold War was dominated by this icy relationship between the United States and Russia, then the Soviet Union. Having done this research, are there ways in which the current relationship between these two countries today is reminiscent of the Cold War, do you think? I think um, it's important to realize that we're in a, a different time. We've evolved from this. I think it is important to go back and take a look at it and see some of the lessons that were learned. Um, for example, We relied greatly on our allies, both NATO and proxies around the world. And it's extremely important to have those allies now to help us in political and military actions. That that added stability to what was otherwise a pretty unstable history. That's exactly right. And so you think that, that that ought to be looked at going forward. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Don Stanton teaches political science at CU Denver. His new book is Looking Back at the Cold War. It also profiles, by the way, Soviet veterans as well. It's about to sound like we're going underwater. We're not, but we are going into a kind of sea that dominates Colorado. In the first episode of Wild Tracks about the natural sounds of the Mountain West, 
we'll wade into what biologists call the sagebrush sea. Every spring, it's this uneasy adventure out for the first time, driving across some snow usually, and you get there in the pre-dawn darkness, roll down the window, and wait to hear that acoustic beacon. And so far every year, it's come. My name's Pat McGee, and I'm a wildlife biologist that studies Gunnison sage grouse and their conservation. So sage grouse are a large chicken-like bird that's much larger than a regular chicken, and maybe a big rooster. And the males dart their courtship displays in the dark on these uh, spring mornings. And just as people might do trying to meet a potential partner uh, on a dance floor, sage grouse do the same thing. They fan out these tails, these spiky tails, gulp up air, inflate these very large and bizarre yellowish gelatinous air sacs that come out of their chest. And then this is where it all culminates. They take two steps, thrust a ponytail over the top of their head, and while they're doing this, they resonate a vocalization that comes from deep inside their chest. just an amazingly rich sound of bubbling water percolating through the dry sagebrush. And then it transmits long distances, maybe up to several kilometers, to tell the others that the dance has begun. So this sound that you're hearing now is a recording that my student and I made and as the sage grouse is going on its business, suddenly you hear this other low-frequency broadband sound. It's the sound of a jet airplane that's flying over. And in that type of environment, the sage grouse can't hear themselves create the sounds, and they can't hear each other's sounds. And then that means the opportunity for mating is being disrupted. For the Gunnison sage grouse, this is a species that occupies about 10% of its historic range. There's 4,000 individual birds left on the planet. And for a species like this, every mating opportunity really does count. I do fear that some, some spring I might not hear that sound. And that would be a huge loss to me and to the whole planet. Those sounds came from Patrick McGee at Western State Colorado University and the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Our series, Wild Tracks, Capturing Sounds of the Mountain West, is produced by Sam Brash. Maybe you got a hike in over the weekend, or you plan to hit the trail again soon. Thing is, it can get awfully crowded if you're hiking near Denver. Well, come west, says outdoor rider Bill Haggerty of Grand Junction, where many of the trails aren't so busy. He put together the guidebook Hiking Colorado's Western Slope. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. In the opening of your book, you describe hiking as a skin-tingling, all-senses-alive adventure. How did you become hooked on hiking? <laughs> That's a good question. I... I've been hooked on hiking for years. My dad uh, was born and raised in Moraine Park in the middle of Rocky Mountain National Park. So huh. 
he started us off really early with with hiking and enjoying outside. He was born there and raised there? Uh yeah, actually he was actually he was born in Illinois on the way. They were uh grandpa worked on the on the road Trail Ridge Road there. He was a civil engineer. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, so dad was actually born in the car on the way, but yeah, he was he was raised right there in Moraine Park and graduated from Estes High. That is fascinating. Okay, so this has been a part of you for a very long time. I don't know, d- describe a, a skin tingler or maybe the prettiest hike in this new guidebook. I'll describe one of the skin tinglers that I think is one of the prettiest hikes, and that is down into the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Hmm. Uh, Bobcat Trail was really one of my power spots growing up and into my late 30s. <laughs> and I went down that trail a couple of years ago. The last 125 feet or so is pretty much hand over foot rock scrambling. And uh, when I was young, that was easy. <laughs> but a couple <laughs> of years ago, it was certainly skin tingling going down. <laughs> Hikes might change over time, or at least the people hiking them do. And describe what you see when you go down into the Black Canyon. One of the most magnificent scenes you'll find in the lower 48, I believe. I mean, it's 2,200 feet deep at its darkest, which is one of the reasons it's called black, because the sun just never reaches the bottom. The other reason is that that hard granite along there is just rubbed black through time and weathering. Um, and it's just a magnificent river in the bottom of that. It It is just one of the most special places I've ever found. Okay, so the Bobcat Trail, huh? Yep, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Okay. If you don't want to do that one, try Ute. It's also in the book, but it's a lot easier. This book really covers the entire western slope. I mean, you hiked almost 60 trails, I think, to put it together. And uh, I wonder how many miles of Colorado's backcountry you'd say you have hiked. <laughs> That's a good question. I was going to figure those numbers out. I was just going to add them all up, but, you know, <laughs> my calculator wasn't working. I think I've gone through uh, two and a half or three pair of boots hiking just these trails in the book. And you have had some real adventures putting it together, including a backcountry medical emergency? What, what, what happened? Uh, yeah, that was a little sketchy. Labor Day, I went into the Powderhorn Wilderness, which is located between... Gunnison and Lake City to the east. Yeah. Powderhorn Lakes is just a spectacular area. It's right beneath Calf Plateau and Cannibal Plateau, which is where old Alfie Packard had his lunch. Yes, but, the, the infamous cannibal. That's right. But I got, uh, I got into the lakes. I backpacked in and then got really violently ill that night and couldn't figure out what it was. So when I crawled out of there, uh, I went to the doctor and I had a triple hernia, an incarcerated hernia. Incarcerated? Oh my goodness, it's serious enough for prison. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I felt like I was in prison, I'll tell you, driving home. <laughs> uh, well, besides that, tell us more about that part of the world. I've been to Lake City. It's one of the most remote spots in the lower 48 because it's just surrounded by public lands. It is, and that's one of the nicest things actually about the entire western slope. I mean, most of it is open public property. Um, Some of those areas around Lake City are drop-dead gorgeous because you've got all those 14,000-foot peaks down there. Um, But the Powderhorn Wilderness is a little unique. It's uh, a flat, high alpine 
almost desert-like situation in certain areas where you've got huge, huge, wide-open swaths of, of high mountain parks. You can see all the way down to the Lagaritas and down into New Mexico. You can see up north over to the Uncompahgre Peak and, and Mount Sneffels. It's just one of the most magnificent areas in the state. And like you say, it's surrounded by public land, and there's not many people there. Mm. I went into that Powderhorn Lakes. They say that's one of the most crowded areas in that whole forest down there. I saw six people over Labor Day weekend. <laughs> that was it. It's all relative on the west it slope is. versus the east slope, I think. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Grand Junction outdoor writer Bill Haggerty. He has put together a new guidebook called Hiking Colorado's Western Slope. And I understand your, your wife doesn't let you hike alone anymore after that hernia incident. Uh, no, no. And I think that's good advice for most people. Yes, that's <laughs> Take right. my wife's advice. Hike with a friend. Makes yes. sense. You know, guidebooks can be dry, but in your book, Aspen Forests Sparkle, uh, Wildflowers Glow, Brooks Are Hypnotic, Mud Isn't Just Sticky, It's Shoe Sucking. <laughs> well, it's true. Welcome to Colorado. I really do believe that. We live in such a spectacular part of our country um, that it truly is awe-inspiring when you get outside and you can really see those, you know, those quaking aspen and those colorful flowers and crested butte and, and enjoy the canyons and rivers. You know, that's why we live here. And most people, I don't believe, take advantage of it. Uh, you know, we're, we're in God's country here and everybody's sitting in their car on Colorado Boulevard, right? Boy, I, I know what that feels like and how desperately I often want to escape it. You include many historical tidbits in this book. Tell us about the school kids who saved Buffalo Nichols to enhance a trail in the Colorado National Monument. There was this crazy old coot back at the turn of the last century named John Otto who really pushed for the designation of a national park here. Uh, that he wanted to call Colorado Canyons National Park. He did eventually uh, push through a national monument or helped push through a national monument designation. But he always thought that one of the coolest things to get people to come here and visit would be to have a bunch of buffalo there. And there was actually an old photo that I dug up out of the archives um, that showed a Navajo skinning a buffalo in this area back in the mid-1800s maybe. But that's the only evidence there was ever of a buffalo, and it probably didn't come from here. Huh. But nonetheless, John got all the local school kids to save their buffalo head nickels, and, and a couple of the local groups helped support them, and they started a herd of buffalo that was here until uh, the mid-'80s, I believe, or late-'90s. I can't, I, I've got it in the book. You'll have to read the book. You'll have to read the book, <laughs> said, the, yeah. said the author. You know, but, but yeah, he had a, a herd of buffalo right here in the desert that lasted for quite a while. They kept it small, about 20, 25 head most of the time. But uh, it was quite a shock to come down some of those trails out of the National Monument and see a buffalo staring at you. Hmm. Otto himself actually built most of the trails by hand, all by himself. Give us an example of one. I think the most unique one is uh, off of Liberty Cap Trail, which actually comes out of uh, the Redlands area in Grand Junction and goes up toward the top to uh, an area called Liberty Cap. Off to the side of that is another trail called Corkscrew. 
And it's literally built in the side of this granite wall that goes up about 250 feet. And it just scales it. <laughs> and he just blasted it out with dynamite and pickaxes all by himself. It's, it's really a neat trail to hike. Again, in the Colorado National Monument. We'll put the, the names of the trails we're getting at our website, cprnews.org. Many of the trails you write about have really colorful names. So Lost Man, Skinny Fish, Cutthroat Castle, and I love this one, Oh Be Joyful. Uh, are, are, <laughs> are those as interesting as they sound? They are, every one of them, really. Oh Be Joyful is a wonderland in the summer. It's right there in Crested Butte, which is the wildflower capital of Colorado. Yes. And the world, if you ask me. It's not far outside of Crested Butte, maybe 10, 15 miles and uh, it's just loaded with wildflowers in the summer. But the reason it's called Obi Joyful, there's a couple of big mountains that surround it where there were some really large silver mines um, back in the late 1800s. And those miners were oh so joyful to race down that valley to get to the brothels in Crested Butte <laughs> when they got time <laughs> off. That's where the name came from. Obi Joyful. That's funny. I thought it was so innocent. Nope. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, you you do name your top five hikes in this book. And number one is um, quite a serious story. It's the Storm King 14 Memorial Trail. Tell us about it and why it's at the top of your list. You know, when we talked about skin tingling right off the top, that's the most skin tingling hike I think I've ever done. To see what those firefighters had to go through to get up to the top of that mountain is absolutely incredible when they're carrying hundred pound packs and chainsaws and all sorts of equipment. And to see that type of terrain and to see the destruction that that fire caused, it gives everyone pause. It really is an impactful trail. And I just, it's not the most beautiful trail. Definitely. It's, it's not the hardest, but it's certainly not the easiest it's just the, the most impactful for an outdoor hiker, for an outdoor rider. I've just never felt that on any other trail in my life. This is the fire in 1994 uh, in Glenwood Springs that killed 14 firefighters. Yep. Hey, thanks for sharing these hikes with us. Thank you. Bill Haggerty wrote the Falcon Guidebook, Hiking Colorado's Western Slope. We spoke last summer. Finally today, music that was born in Mexico but raised in the United States. The Denver theater company Su Teatro hosts the 22nd annual Chicano Music Festival this week, celebrating Latin music, arts, and culture. One of the main events is the induction ceremony for the Chicano Music Hall of Fame. And among this year's honorees is band leader and saxophonist Larry Lobato Sr. of Monte Vista. Lobato picked up his first saxophone at an early age, learning traditional Spanish cumbias, rancheras, and ballads. Over the last few decades, he's performed across Colorado with several bands, including his own family act, Latin Touch. Here he is with the song Siempre en Mi Mente, Always On My Mind.
doy y cosas con mi cariño. Si triste yo fui, feliz ahora soy, viviendo así contigo. No quiero saber de cosas y ayer, me importa de lo presente. Larry Lobato Sr., the third-generation Colorado musician. He'll be inducted this week into the Chicano Music Hall of Fame. It's part of the Chicano Music Festival in Denver, which starts Wednesday. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Matters and CPR News.